The following audio is from All Saints Church. For more information about the church, please visit our website at allsaintsgb.org. How can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? David himself, in the Holy Spirit, declared, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord. So how is he his son? And the great throng heard him gladly. And in his teaching, he said, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplaces and have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts, who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. And he sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums. And a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which make a penny. And he called his disciples to him and said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance. But she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. This is God's word. It is true. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come not with a richness in righteousness of our own accord, but we come as poor, weak, broken, and sinful people, ones who are in need of someone to come and save us. Lord Jesus, would you open our ears, our hearts, to behold wonderful things out of your word. Bless us that we might follow you and give you our everything. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Uh, a few days ago, teens and perhaps uh, overzealous uh, and maybe a little irresponsible parents gathered at 10 p.m. or maybe midnight uh, in the night to watch the newest Marvel flick that came out. Um, and as they, as they gathered or as they sat for, I don't know however long this one was, a couple hours at least, they usually are, they emerged, whether it was at midnight or 2.30 a.m., and they said one of two things, wow, that was worth it. Or, what a waste, right? Not worth it, not worth it. I don't think any movie is probably worth it at 2 a.m., but I am getting old. (laughs) But what does it mean to speak about something's worth? What does it mean to say that something is worthy? Well, worth, this word, has to do with value, right? The ring on someone's finger, not this one, uh, maybe has the value of uh, $1,000, right? It means its worth is equivalent to that dollar amount. Maybe some memories, some moments uh, like weddings or births or baptism have almost immeasurable, immeasurable worth, and we'd never give them up for anything. But in truth, we deal, we trade in worth and value every day. We make judgment calls about what is worth it. We pick and choose where we go, what we buy, if it's worth our time, if it's worth our money our attention. The hard truth is, and and somewhat the unfortunate reality, is that we can be pretty poor in this game in treating things with the right amount of value, counting things, events, or people as valuable as they truly are. You maybe can think of times in your past where you've thought, wow, I missed out. I missed out. I didn't value the, the time that I had, that person, that season, right? Even when we seem to understand how valuable something is, even then we 
don't value it as we know we should, right? Relationships with children, with spouses, parents, right? With precious friends, we let it come and go. Even things that have infinite worth like God himself, we can treat as less. We can consistently live as if he is not worthy. In truth, we need help to rightly weigh the worth of the most important things. Everyone in the world does. We need help to count as less important the things that are not worth living, are not worth living for. Everyone in the world does. And we need grace, sweet grace, to give all of ourselves to that which is of infinite worth. Everyone in the world does. See, Matthew 12, 35 through 44, it reveals that people, it's us, we don't live like the Lord is worthy. We too quickly live as if the praise of people is. And this passage reveals that the worthiest thing in all the world is God himself. And the worthiest thing we can give to him is us, ourselves, our hearts, our lives. And so this passage, in the simplest way, teaches that because Jesus Christ is Lord, because Jesus Christ is Lord, he is worthy of all your life. He's worthy of all your life. Live like he is worthy. We do that, uh, we'll explore three ways we do that. Uh, One, by acknowledging Christ as Lord. This is the baseline. This is where we start. Christ is Lord. Two, by counting man's praise as unworthy. And three, by giving our entire selves to him. By giving our entire selves to him. Let's look back at the verses. Uh, In verses 35 to 37, the first few there, what we learn is that the Christ is not only the son or human descendant of David, but that he's David's Lord, and in turn, our Lord, and therefore he's worthy. Right? And so from that, we're supposed to acknowledge that he is Lord, worthy. So for much of the last two chapters, if you remember, uh, the religious leaders have been on this war path to stump Jesus. And last week's passage ended with no one daring to ask Jesus any more questions. They they raise the white flag. We're done. So Jesus instead launches his own in verse 35 to 37. And here's what Jesus is trying to do. With his question, he's trying to show that the Messiah, the Christ, is worth more, or that he is more than the scribes, the most educated religious teachers. He's more than what they think him to be. Okay, that's where he's going with this question. Now, the words Christ and Messiah, we use them interchangeably. They simply mean the anointed one. Christ comes from the Greek, Messiah comes from the Hebrew, but they mean in, in a short way of saying the anointed one are the one anointed to save and rule his people as king. That's what Christ means. That's what we say when we say Jesus Christ. See, way back in 2 Samuel 7, this was about a thousand years ago, before Jesus' time, that is, uh, God made a promise to David that one of his descendants would become king and that he would would rule again over, over the whole world. And this is why the son of David, the Messiah, uh, the Christ, was always associated with the son of David. You think son of David, promised coming Christ. Well, in Psalm 110, which uh, Jesus quotes in verse 36 this psalm, the one we read today, was sung or recited in David's day, normally when a king was being uh, crowned at his coronation. And in essence, it was saying this, the Lord, Yahweh, that's his name in the Old Testament, Yahweh was saying to the new king, little L, Lord, 
Come sit at my right hand, and I will defeat all your enemies. That's that exchange in Psalm 110. But over the 1,000 years from David's day to Jesus' day, right, the people went into exile. They were ruled over by foreign nations. And so the people, what they did with Psalm 110, because they weren't using it for kings, uh, making those people kings, uh, they didn't have Jews becoming kings, I should say. The people began to read Psalm 110 like a prophecy. This is a prophecy about, uh, from David's mouth and hand about the coming king, the son of David, the Christ. That's what Psalm 110, they thought of it in that way. And so with this context, Jesus is pointing out this. He's saying, how can the greatest, the godliest King David in all of Israel's history, how can he call the coming Christ my Lord? The word in Hebrew for that second Lord, I mean, those two lords, you see that second word in verse 36 is Adonai, Adonai. And it can be used for a human Lord or a human king, but well over 300 times in the Old Testament, it's actually used for God himself. It's used for God himself. And so Jesus is implying to the scribes, you think the Christ is simply the human son of David who is coming to defeat your political rulers, right? Your earthly powerful enemies. But listen to what David says. David called the Christ his Lord. He's more, the Christ is more than just a human ruler. He's pressing the scribes to understand this. And Jesus is pressing what the gospel of Mark has over and over again tried to show us. It shows us that the people, the the scribes, they don't expect, understand, or really want this type of Christ. Psalm 110 shows that the Christ is the Lord himself in the flesh. And Jesus is that Christ. That's what's happening in this exchange. And if Jesus is the Christ, and if he is Lord, this is our baseline, it means that he is Lord of the cosmos, the universe. From the smallest particles to the grandest stars and black holes, Everything in between, visible and invisible, that's what Jesus is Lord over, or what he is Lord over. And normally we understand that the one who makes something, he owns it, belongs to him. And in turn, he is worthy. He is worthy of all of the praise for it. So if Jesus Christ is Lord of the universe, then he is worthy of all of our worship, worthy of all of our lives. The, the implication that the Christ is more than the scribes are willing to acknowledge, that he is Lord, it ends up actually leaving them speechless. That's some of why there's no response in verse 37, if you look, right? It says they, they didn't give a response. Or rather, there's no response recorded. When we speak of things of explosive worth, perhaps one thing that has been in the news more so recently are things called cryptocurrencies. I'm not going to explain them here, but it is something that has had more uh, news in, in recent history, particularly one called Bitcoin. Well, they've actually been around for over a decade. And on May 22nd in 2010, a man in Florida, he made the first Bitcoin transaction ever. You know what he bought? He bought two pizzas for 10,000 Bitcoin, which was the equivalent of about $40 in that day. Now, today, I didn't check this morning, it's the Lord's Day, but today, a one Bitcoin is about worth $35,000. 
Mm-hmm. So if he had kept that 10,000 Bitcoin, he would have over $350 million today. Wild, right? Bitcoin was worth more than he expected it to be. Who can, who can blame him for sending it, using it in this way? But unlike the man, unlike the scribes, we have some idea of how worthy, valuable Jesus Christ is. But so often our lives don't look like we treat him as more than $350 million, 10,000 Bitcoin, or even just small, minute things. Jesus Christ as Lord is of infinite worth, more than those big numbers, because everything, 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 everything is dependent upon him and his word and his will. But in truth, we will not count Jesus Christ as worthy of all of our lives until we acknowledge that he is Lord, Lord of the cosmos. That's where we start. He's Lord of the cosmos. And so when we come in worship and we confess, Christ, you are Lord, we have to ask ourselves, do I really live like it? Do I really acknowledge it in my daily life? Ask yourself this. Does what I, rather, does my life show that I count Jesus as having infinite worth? Does my life show that I count Jesus as having infinite worth? On your list of treasures, which I'm sure we all have at home next to the bed stand, is Jesus' name at the top? Does what I talk about, think about, spend money on, show that I count Christ as of infinite worth more than anything in the universe? Am I more likely to forget the worth of Christ until my work is too hard, until I feel too sick, until I'm at a loss with my child, with my parent, with my spouse, or until that boy or girl at school doesn't like me anymore? Do we forget his worth until those moments and then we say, help? Regularly, we like the scribes treat Jesus as less, not more, than he is. And so, again, simply to live like Jesus is worthy, we must acknowledge that he is Lord. This week, here's your challenge for you. This week, make a note, write a reminder on the fridge, a note next to the bed, an alarm on your phone, put on the dashboard of the car, wherever you look regularly. Write this note. Christ is Lord. Christ is Lord. He is worthy. Two simple sentences. Read it out loud. When we state this, it regularly retrains our minds to state what is true of who God is and how we must live or drive or whatever we might be doing in light of who Christ is. Beyond simply acknowledging him as Lord, we must, too, we must count other things like the praise of man, as less worthy of our lives. This is our second point. To live like he is worthy, we must count people's praise as unworthy. So if you look at verse 37, it ends with the crowds glad to see the scribes silenced. It's like one of those memes or whatever it is. Like, you know you're a bad teacher when, right? Your students are so happy that you're dumbfounded and have nothing to say. Verses 38 through 40, though, tell us why. Why are they happy that the scribes are silenced? Well, the scribes know the scriptures the best. Uh, but what we should see is that the knowledge of the scriptures, the knowledge of the scriptures does not equate to loving, obeying, or counting God as worthy, or rather the scriptures author or authority as worthy. 
Simply put, the scribes live for the applause, right? And also for money. We'll get to that too. See, the scribes were typically esteemed by everyone, everywhere. In the marketplaces, they, the people separated like the Red Sea as they swished by in their long robes. Seats of honor, literally elevated at times, they filled so everyone could see them. Their lengthy prayers were meant to look holy. They wanted to be seen as deserving, as earning their office. They wanted to be deferred to by everyone. And their treasure was the praise of people. But they also loved money. They also loved money. See, scribes weren't allowed to take a wage. Rather, they either had to have a separate job in order to make enough money, or they depended on people's generosity of people giving to them. And to ensure that second option of getting money, they taught that the highest duty or privilege that someone could have was to give money to the scribes to provide for them, right? Which in turn may just secure a greater place in paradise. But this is likely where that line comes in, of, in I think it's in 30, 37, or rather in 40, where it says, uh, devouring widows' households. Widows and orphans were the most poor, the most powerless, the most honorless in that society. It was the, the poorest place to be. And laws literally had to be made in order to protect them. Yet, this is who the scribes were preying upon. Don't Jesus' words to the scribes sound like Amos's? Remember the fall, we studied through Amos for what seemed like a very long time. It was wonderful. But in Amos 2, it says that they trampled the heads of the poor and the defenseless. The scribes were supposed to be shepherd-like. They're supposed to tend the flock, treating widows as objects of compassion. In Ezekiel 34, it says the Lord threatens the spiritual shepherds who, instead of caring for the flock, feast on them. That's the first rule of being a shepherd. Don't eat the sheep. Right? But that's, that's what they were doing. What makes the scribes worse, and this sin so much worse, is that they were using religion as the means by which they got praise. Right? They're using religion to get the praise and for devouring the honorless, the widow. And the Lord says, what? They will experience abundant, greater condemnation. Perhaps the greatest condemnation after simply just rejecting Christ. This, it comes in using religion to your own ends. You can imagine this scene with me, okay? At 2 a.m., you can't sleep. Perhaps you flip on the TV for a moment. And who do you see but Preacher McTeacher? What a name. Preacher McTeacher is up on the stage, right, with his fancy suit, and he's promising life eternal, right? Life eternal to any who call within the next 30 minutes and make a donation. But if you call in the next 10, you can get that extra blessed healing towel with your initials embroidered on it. You want to have that. Isn't this spiritual abuse? Isn't this a fake shepherd feasting on sheep? You might know people who have fallen by the wayside, and that often they're Maybe elderly men and women who are longing to be made right with God, and here comes a fake shepherd to feast on them. This type of feasting happens all the time, though. It happens even in smaller places, right? Green Bay, rural communities. Whether the congregation is 20 or 2,000, there are churches that right, literally elevate the pastor. I'm not saying stages are always bad, but they fill auditoriums with the amounts of people that they could never meet with. Pastors and elders and leaders, they could never meet with. They could never look them in the eyes and pray for them. They could never care for them the way a shepherd ought to. 
Yet the pastor gets his praise. The church has its billboard, and there is a healthy bottom line. But don't worry, pastors in smaller congregations face this temptation too. Boy, I hope you like this sermon. Because, man, I, I, I de- I'm desperate for your praise, right? Pastors in small churches can do this too. It can be more attractive to preach a good sermon than it is to pray quietly with a mourning mother, with a sad widow. It's more attractive sometimes to spiritual leaders to view their role as something that's earned, something that they're entitled to, rather than a calling to go and die, to be responsible to serve those who God puts before them. If you're tempted in this way, you will likely use people for the ends of praise or money. So pastors, elders, spiritual leaders, Ben, men and women who are spiritual leaders in this church, if this sin is in you, we must repent. Simply put, we must repent of trafficking praise under the name of religion. We must ask Lord for the mercy, oh, the mercy to repent and to leave that behind, for it is greatly condemned and is very serious. Perhaps you're here this morning from another church in the past, and you feel more feasted upon, right? Maybe you can still feel those, the bite marks on your calf from another place you've been, or Lord willing, hopefully not here. Um, be encouraged that Christ, who is the Lord, he is also the good shepherd. Right? He's the one who will give judgment for unrepentant feasters on the flock. And though there are those spiritual leaders who might bite at you, manipulate your praise or your pocketbooks, you know what they can't have? They can't have your souls. That is something that is of great worth to the Lord Jesus Christ. And he keeps those for himself. Trust in Christ. He keeps you safe. There's a separate application, though, here as well. Not just for spiritual leaders, but for all of us. Do we not all long for praise, for prominence, right? to be deferred to as the one who knows the most or to be thought of as much? When you get up in the morning and you start getting dressed, who is it for? When you say the things that you say, who is it for? When you keep silent, when you should say something, who is it for? Who's praise? We've used our status, our name, our education, our occupation, skills and talents, our looks or the beauty of our voices, maybe, to receive praise from man. But man's praise is not worthy of your life. Mm-mm. No, it is not. Christ is, the Lord of the cosmos. So to live, to live, friends, like he's worthy, we must meet, treat man's praise as less worthy or as unworthy. Of course, it's, it's a good thing to be praised for good things. Galatians 6 says this. But praise itself cannot become a God thing, right? It's a terrible God. And so we must treat man's praise as unworthy and just commit to being regular repenters. This happens, right, for us. When you recognize your desire for the cute boy or cute girl's praise in third period, right? In that moment, say, I want the praise of man, and I confess it as sin. When you want your boss's compliments, or even, even the good approval from a parent, making that a God thing, you recognize, you repent. In that moment, it's not worth my whole life. Jesus is. We can pray that in the coming week, perhaps memorize that even. Their praise is not worth living for, but Christ is. Their praise is not worth living for, but Christ is. Our third point is that Jesus Christ, again, is Lord and he's worthy of all of our lives. 
So we've seen it, obviously. It, it looks like acknowledging, right, that he's Lord. It looks like counting man's praise as unworthy. But finally, in verses 41 through 44, we see that we live like he is worthy by giving all of ourselves to him. See, these two sections of, um, of teaching uh, are followed by Jesus doing something. What? Watching. He's just watching. He's stumped and rebuked the scribes, and he now shows what true loving and counting the Lord as worthy really looks like. See, the temple in Jerusalem was perhaps the most massive in the entire Roman Empire, which is saying something. And incredible wealth went through the temple, especially around Passover, which was happening right at this, this point in the story. And the temple housed about 13 donation boxes. And the one box, or a few of the boxes that were for the priestly services, a priest would stand by that box, would ask and inquire out loud about the amount of gift and what it was for. Talk about looking for man's praise. We're not, we shouldn't do tithing that way at All Saints, probably. But Jesus sits and he watches as the rich give large amounts out of their wealth. And let's be clear, that's not bad. It's good that they are giving abundant gifts. It's just that the cost to them is different than it is for someone else, giving out of their abundance. But along comes a poor widow. See, widows are already poor. So when Mark says a poor widow, he means poor, poor. She is very poor. She comes with all that she has in the entire world. She has two coins, a penny. And that's what she puts in. Jesus sees her. Jesus sees her. He calls his disciples, says, Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all who have contributed, perhaps collectively. The coins could not have had less value. The widow herself could not be of less value. And Jesus says she gives more than all those who contributed. In Psalm 50, the Lord says, If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world in all its fullness is mine. God doesn't need their money. He doesn't need her two coins, right? What does God want? He wanted her heart, and she gave it in full. Matthew 6, 21 says, Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The widow's treasure, what she counted more worthy than her own life, was the Lord. It was the Lord. She didn't have to give both. Even because she was so poor, she wouldn't even have had to give anything, perhaps. But she gives everything. Ask yourself, what is worth giving up my whole life for? That's where your treasure is. Whatever the answer is, that's where your treasure is. This, uh, this past week, I, I spoke with my mother about my father's upcoming birthday. And I said, per usual, I'd ask, and is, there anything, uh, is there anything dad needs or that would be of value to him? And, and my mom, she said, oh, you know dad. <laughs> you know dad. He just wants to be with his kids his grandkids. What is worth my father's aging attention, affection? What does he want? Praise God. It's just us. Just us. Aging parents and grandparents begin to understand the poverty of time that they have. It runs short, and they want to spend it where? Where it's most valuable with their kids. Adults or children who have lost a mom, a dad, a loved one, 
What would it be worth if you could spend one more day with them? It's likely worth a lot, right? We can understand the importance of weighing something's worth and being willing to give so much to have it. What is worth giving up your whole life for? What is your treasure? A better example than even the widow is the perfect Christ. The Lord himself, he shows us what he counted as worthy of his whole life. Hebrews 12 says it this way, Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy, who for the joy set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and he's seated at the right hand of the throne of God, like Psalm 110, like the king, Adonai, right hand of the father. Jesus counted the triune God's plan of redemption worth it. He counted you, me, those who would trust in Christ. He counted us as worth it. What a statement about our worth, friends. Christ lived, died, rose again because saving sinners, making us his adopted children through faith, was worth it in his infinitely wise plan. Do we know what God is after in our lives? Jesus shows us, verses 41 through 44. Hear this. God isn't after your money. He's after your heart. He's after your heart. But what you do with money shows whether he has your heart or not. What we do with what God gives us shows whether he has our heart. Can we say, if it's between eating tomorrow... Or having you, Jesus, I take you every day and twice on Sunday. Can we say, you can have all my bank account. You can have all my possessions, my prestige, my reputation, my hobbies. Just give me Jesus. Just just give me the Lord. That's enough. That's what the widow's saying. The Apostle Paul in Philippians 3 says it this way. He says, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, like David said, my Lord. For his sake I have suffered and lost all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Friends, I challenge you, me, today, this week, write down or talk out loud, either to the Lord, to a friend, to a spouse, have this conversation. What will I not give up to the Lord? What will I not give up to gain the Lord? It's a great conversation starter. What do I count as a greater worth than knowing him? We write it down, we say it, we confess it to each other. And then we pray for one another. We say, Jesus, take from my clenched hands what I don't want to give you. What I count as more worth or worthy than you. Perhaps you look on your life and you think, I don't have much. Right? I'm, I'm 40. What do I have to show for it? What am I worth? I'm 14. Life is pointless. What good am I? I'm 74 and my faith doesn't look like the widow's faith does. Right? Two things for you. One, as you feel insignificant, Jesus sees you. He sees you. The least important person, perhaps in the entire world, a widow in the Middle East who's poor, held Jesus' attention. She was worth it. Your life is lived before the face of God every day. No moment insignificant. No person insignificant. 
God sees your every moment. And so therefore, too, Jesus said that the least important, the poorest, gave more than all the rest. Why? Because she gave herself. She gave all she had, her whole life. It's of great value to God to give your whole life. To close, uh, certainly the internet is, is full of so many stories about audacious giving at great cost to self, right? For something or someone. And perhaps we only need to look to mothers to see such a picture like that, right? Who gives their entire bodies, right? Even for their children. Happy Mother's Day. But the greatest story of all, the greatest one of giving up something for worth, goes like this. For God so loved the world... For God so counted the world, not deserving of, but of such value to himself, that he gave up the most valuable thing in all the world, his very own son. So that we who would believe in him will not perish, but that we will have eternal life through faith in Jesus Christ. See, the scribes didn't see Christ as more than a political ruler for their own ends. For Christ is Lord, worthy of our lives. Acknowledge it. Scribes saw man's praise or man's money as worthy of their lives. For Christ is Lord, the only one worthy of your life. Live like man's praise is unworthy. And finally, Jesus sat and watched a widow who gave all she had, all of herself. By the grace of God, we can live like he is worthy of counting all other things of rubbish compared to knowing him, compared to being found in him through faith. Christ, the Lord of the cosmos, gave what? all of himself, for his people. So that we might know the joy of living like he is worthy by giving every single thing we have in our lives to follow him. May God give us the grace by his spirit to do so. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are a people who miscalculate worth every day. Even the things we know of are, are, are of great worth we treat other smaller, lesser things as of more worth. Oh, but Lord, you never make this mistake. Christ, at the right time, the fulfillment of time, came and died for sinners like us, that by trusting in Christ, we might know the worth, the worth, the value, and the joy of knowing Christ our Savior. God, would you give us the grace to lay down our lives, to give you everything, knowing, just like the widow did, that you are the Lord of the cosmos. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.